Welcome to BDO in the Boardroom, a podcast series for board of directors and those charged with governance. Each episode features a topical discussion with board peers and subject matter experts on both trending and timeless boardroom issues, covering a myriad of issues including, but not limited to, mitigating risk in the increasingly digital world, navigating your board career, from landing your first board seat to succession planning in support of the next generation, to other top of mind issues such as ESG reporting, shareholder activism, and the insights we share through the BDO Center for Corporate Governance and Financial Reporting. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our podcast. I am delighted to share my conversation on Conscious Capitalism 101 uh, with Raj Sasodia with you today. My name is Hitesh Shah. I'm the Director of Business Development for BDO here in the Bay Area. And to kick off our podcast, Raj, uh, I'm going to ask you our first question on what is conscious capitalism? Sure. Uh, Very happy to be with you, uh, Hitesh, and with the uh, BDO community, uh, who I've gone pretty close to, I would say, in the last two or three years. Um, So I have been a business professor since 1985, so that's a little hard to believe, uh, 37 years a uh, professor of marketing and strategy for much of that time. Uh, but I always had some latent dissatisfaction with the traditional story of business. It certainly did not inspire me uh, in any way. And uh, that dissatisfaction led me to ask certain kinds of questions about why things had to be the way they were and why couldn't they be different. And that eventually led me to a research project in 2005 uh, that uh, started as In Search of Marketing Excellence, looking for companies that spent less money on marketing and yet had outstanding customer loyalty and trust because I had found that the norm was the opposite. We were spending an extraordinary amount of money on marketing in this country, $1 trillion in 2004, which was significantly higher than the GDP of India that year. And yet customer loyalty and customer trust had plummeted and uh, customer satisfaction was relatively low. So I said, wow, we're spending all this money and not getting much to show for companies or for society, or even for customers themselves. You know, 88% of people had a negative view of marketing. So I had all this angst about marketing, and I channeled that into that project and say, is there a better way to do this so that customers you know, love the company and are, and are delighted and satisfied and loyal? And how do we make that happen without spending? You can't buy all those things. So how does that work? So that inquiry led me to uh, find a group of companies where uh, I found that there was a different pattern of being that not only did their customers love them, but their employees love them, suppliers were loyal to them, communities embraced them, and investors actually uh, cared about uh, what they were doing. They were investing in what they're uh, seeking to do, not just looking for a return. So I found that there were companies that actually had a stakeholder mindset, right, where not only customers love them, but employees love them, et cetera. And then what bound them together was a, a shared purpose, an inspiring purpose, and some core values So we discovered some of the principles of what we now call conscious capitalism through that research. We also found there are different kinds of leaders uh, who care about the people and purpose and and also different kinds of cultures. So that book became Firms of Endearment. Uh, That's the title under which it was published. And we found that these companies had outperformed the market by a nine to one ratio over a 10 year period. And we hadn't selected them at all based upon their financial performance. We had simply looked for this pattern which was different than the traditional pattern of uh, of businesses. And we found 
that the 18 public companies had significantly outperformed. And then we tried to understand how and why that is. And that so that became the basis for the conscious capitalism movement, uh, which started when I met John Mackey a few months after that book was published. He loved that book, invited me to spend a day with him. And I had a passion or a vision for what I was calling the Institute of for New Capitalism, or INC was the acronym. And John looked at my mind map and said, well, that's my vision as well, but I like the phrase conscious capitalism, uh, which Muhammad Yunus uh, had coined some years prior in, in the 90s, actually, uh, referring to what today we would refer to as a social business. But he was talking about uh, that being conscious capitalism. We define it as something that applies to all businesses, but society is a stakeholder. So that was the beginning, and that was 2008 when we started the movement. The movement has grown. We have chapters in about close to 50 cities in the U.S. and about a dozen other countries. And, and that phrase now is, is becoming part of the language slowly. And, and we're part of a broader current of, of parallel movements that have been trying to change the story of business uh, in the last uh, couple of decades. And, and I think we're succeeding. I think we are either in the middle of or close to a tipping point when it comes to how we think about business. Why uh, why is conscious capitalism, and, and, and you and I have discussed this, there are many different terms that are being utilized. Conscious business, uh, capitalism, to me, is more of an overarching term. Why is it essential today? Why now? Well, you know, uh, if you look at what business and, and capitalism generally have accomplished or have uh, meant for humanity, it's a lot. You know, part of the... Uh, a learning for me in writing Conscious Capitalism was just the history of capitalism and what uh, what it has uh, meant for humanity. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it's extraordinary, actually, because if you look at human history <clears throat> for most of human history until 200 years ago, per capita incomes were five to six hundred dollars per person per year adjusted for inflation, which meant that 90 to 95 percent of human beings lived in extreme abject poverty on the edge of survival. And that was the default condition of human beings, the vast majority of human beings, for almost all of, uh, of human existence. Uh, and that came along with uh, illiteracy, of course, uh, you know, a very low life expectancy, 28 to 30 on average, once you factor in infant mortality and so forth. And so life was pretty grim. Um, and then, you know, the, the whole idea of capitalism really is rooted in the thinking of Adam Smith. Free market capitalism owes its, uh, its, its founding to his um, realizations when he asked the question, why is it that some countries get rich and others remain poor? And he found the answer had to do with freedom. Society is rooted in individual freedom where people were free to focus on what they wanted to do with their life and, and then uh, facilitated the trading of their uh, uh, the output of their work with each other, that those societies would become prosperous rather than central planners trying to decide all those things. You know, what do we produce and how much do we produce it and so forth. So that was a major intellectual breakthrough. The idea of the invisible hand of the market, allocating resources, setting prices, and channeling people's uh, uh, energies towards fruitful ends, right? Towards meeting the needs of their fellow citizens. So that was a major intellectual breakthrough that came uh, uh, just 15 years after the technological breakthrough of the Industrial Revolution and actually coincided, the publication of Wealth of Nations coincided with the birth of the United States as an idea. Uh, the Declaration of Independence also was in 1776 when the Wealth of Nations was published. And so those things all came together uh, here, especially here in the U.S., and then spread from here uh, to other countries. 
which enabled humanity to just take off because for the first time, the common man was in charge of his own destiny by right of law. And it, it actually did apply only to men. Uh, women did not have the right to vote or the right to own property, and it only applied to white men for that. But still, still it was revolutionary. So that's what capitalism has enabled. Uh, in the in the succeeding two centuries, since the year 1800 or so, if you look at the data, um, per capita incomes have risen about 1800% after being flat for millennia. Life expectancy has more than doubled. Literacy has gone from 13% to 87%. The percentage of people now living in extreme poverty is around nine, a little below 9%. It was 90% in the year 1800. Uh, and life expectancy has gone from 28 to well over 70. So many more humans living longer, fuller lives. So that's the upside. That's the the, the benefits that we have reaped. And, and those are not to be minimized. And yet at the same time, we are now starting to see the long-term consequences of that system. Uh, where all these so-called externalities, you know, the environmental consequences, uh, you know, the impact on people's health and well-being, the impact on communities uh, that were deserted in search of better, greener pastures, all of those kinds of things are now starting to become uh, evident, right? And, and most uh, critically, we're starting to see the impact, the cumulative impact on the environment, where just in the last uh, century, 90% of mammals, 95% of large fish, you know, 70% of forests. I mean, all kinds of things have, have been decimated just in one century in order to feed that machine of wealth creation and, and, and uh, generating jobs and products. So we are now starting to recognize that the so-called side effects, the externalities are overwhelming the main effects. And they are threatening our ability to continue to, uh, uh, to, to survive and thrive on this planet. So we need a new way to think about things. And what we want to do, as I said, we need to celebrate capitalism, but we need to elevate it. Because if we don't, we will decimate it. And we are down that path, you know, if we don't change, just like the climate change, we, unless we change soon, you know, we are reaching points of no return in many dimensions. So there's a sense of urgency that these large problems around uh, environmental issues like climate change, like biodiversity, species extinction, deforestation, all the rest of it, that along with growing in income inequality which we have seen, especially in the last 40 years, has grown dramatically uh, in the U.S. way more than in Europe, but certainly it's a story in many countries uh, where worker pay has been flat, but executive pay has gone up a thousand percent. So the system is capable of delivering widespread prosperity, but it has kind of become captive to certain interests. And it is not doing that. And hence the rise of populist movements and all the things that we're seeing, the backlash against capitalism has been growing and a flirtation with socialism, which is a dangerous thing because we know that doesn't work. And that leads to tyranny and that leads to mass suffering. So that is not the answer, but we have need to elevate capitalism, otherwise we will decimate it. So that's what our movement and other parallel movements are about. How do we elevate this? How do we keep the positives, which are extraordinary, uh, and not have to suffer the uh, the negatives, which, uh, which we don't have to? That's the wonderful thing. As my research showed, we can actually have more profits and more shareholder value while also creating many other kinds of wealth, right? So it's not just financial, it's, it's intellectual capital, it's social capital, it's emotional well-being, spiritual well-being, positive impact on the culture, positive impact on our physical health and uh, ecological flourishing. All these can coexist and go together alongside financial wealth creation, right? So they can be positively correlated if you change your mental model of business. Wow, no, that is that is so true, and I think I've I've heard you speak on this, and I've read all of your books, and 
there's amazing stories in there um, in, in, in real life, real world examples. Um, let's talk a little bit about business's role in everything that you're envisioning. And, and what are the consequences, or should I say the benefits of being a conscious business? Well, you know, there are many, many, many benefits of being a conscious business. Uh, it seems like business fires on all cylinders, you know, in a high way, starting with employees. You know, I think if you think about all the stakeholders, the stakeholders that are impacted the most by how a business operates are the employees because their whole lives, you know, big chunk of their waking hours are spent there. And what you find in traditional companies operating under the shareholder value profit maximization paradigm where employees are considered a, a, an input, they're considered a cost to be minimized, right? Uh, we pay them as little as possible uh, and we try to squeeze them as hard as possible. What are the results of that? Very low engagement. The US is about 30% according to Gallup, but worldwide we're only at about 15%, which are shockingly low numbers. I mean, that is shameful, I would say, and tragic. Uh, you look at stress levels are epidemic, burnout levels are epidemic. Um, heart attacks are higher on Mondays. An estimated 120,000 Americans, a conservative estimate, die from stress connected to work. Millions of people die from overwork. Uh, just China alone is 600,000 a year, it's estimated. So the human costs of doing business are extraordinary. But when you look at a conscious company, you have 90, 95% passionate commitment. You have uh, people looking forward. They don't say, thank God it's Friday. They actually look forward. Uh, to their time at work, because work is a source of meaning and fulfillment and joy and camaraderie and growth uh, in these companies, right? So they become what I refer to now as a healing organization. When you, uh, you know, otherwise what we do when we treat people as a resource, you know, resources are things that get used up and at some point they're gone, they're depleted. But in these kinds of organizations, the people actually are not depleted, but they're actually strengthened. And they leave every day physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, socially, uh, and, and uh, psychologically in a better place than when they came in. Right? So it's a place. Why? Because you know they're finding joy, and we're reducing their suffering, and we're enabling healthy growth. So it becomes a place of healing for those that work there. So it, you show it shows up in employees. Employee turnover is much lower, which is a huge cost. I mean, you look at sectors like many service industries, hospitality, retail. Right, average turnover is well over 100% in most of those industries. And, and, and conscious businesses might be in the low single digits in the same industries, right? I mean, Costco was at 7% when Walmart was at 70% some years ago. And so that makes an enormous difference uh, in, in the quality of the experience, not only for those employees, but also for customers. So, so on the employee side, there are many, 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 and it's not just for the employees, it's for their children and their families and their communities all benefit from that, right? Because you know, your state of being is contagious. Your emotions are contagious. So the way you feel at work shows up in how you're able to be as a father or a mother or a, uh, a parent, uh, I mean, or a spouse. And so all of the effects of those are much more positive when it comes to a conscious business. On the customer side, you have tremendous loyalty. Customers are advocates for your products. You don't need to spend a lot of money on on marketing and gimmickry, you don't need to have sales and coupons and all of that stuff. You know, you might occasionally run some ads to create awareness about something that might be new, but you save enormously. And that marketing is, as I said, a huge cost uh, and, and very often a non-productive uh, cost, almost like a tax on the business. So you see it 
your suppliers are loyal and you get the best suppliers, so you get high quality, you know, you get innovation from them. Uh, investors are patient and, uh, and believe in what you're doing. And so you're more resilient in tough times. You know, people don't cut and run. You're operating in a system of loyalty. Communities embrace these companies. And, you know, we have interesting stories of, of companies that were literally saved by their communities. Whole Foods is a classic example. In the second year of their existence, there was a massive flood that essentially destroyed the company. Any normal company was bank, would have been out because there were 400,000 in the red when all of their inventory and equipment uh, was destroyed in a massive flood. And, and they had no way to recover from that, except that their employees and their suppliers and their customers and their community members all rallied around them and cleaned up the store and, uh, you know, restocked them on credit and employees worked without pay for a while. And, you know, all of that happened. And, you know, they literally were back on their feet or started to get back on their feet within three weeks. So there are many examples and it runs both ways. You know, these companies care about their communities. HEB is the largest uh, employer and largest retailer in Texas, a beloved company. And they not only are the, one of the best places to work, you know, they're a grocery chain. Uh, they, their motto is, the CEO says to the uh, executives, please pay our people as much as possible, not as little as possible. So the people are very well paid, very well looked after, and yet prices are lower than Walmart. And when there's a crisis, when there's an emergency, when there's a flood, you know, they show up even before the Red Cross and before FEMA, right? And they're out there with their uh, helicopters and their, you know, uh, 365, 24-7 emergency response systems and so forth. So it's extraordinary, the depth of relationships that uh, that get created uh, by these kinds of organizations. That is absolutely amazing. I've heard so many stories, Raj. One of the stories that I have gotten to know because of you is um, the story of Fifco and Ramon Mendiola in that story. Uh, what a powerful story, and you've really detailed quite a bit of it in his book, and he speaks a lot to it. Um, next question is, you know, I'm thinking, okay, we talked a lot about the benefits of being a company that operates in a conscious manner and that fits the profile of being a conscious company. What are the risks or the adverse effects of not operating in, in, in this manner? And, and and sometimes I also want you to kind of elaborate a little bit on the effects on the environment and not and the people and the employees and all of that. What are the adverse effects of not operating as a conscious company? Yeah, so you know, being a conscious company um, was always a good idea, right? Hundred years ago, and then we have examples of companies like in from India, the Tatas, that are about 140 years, or 150 almost, uh, one from day one, right? They were essentially what today we would call a conscious company. And, you know, a lot of the companies like this did exist because a lot of them came from leaders who were rooted in a spiritual tradition and they viewed their role as stewards and, they, you know, caring for people. I mean, there was an ethos there in many companies, right? So this was always a good idea. This was always, I would say, a sufficient condition, in, in a sense, for succeeding. Right? Of course, you have to run the business well and you have to have, you know, efficiency and processes and, and you know, all that, obviously a good strategy, a business model, but but this was always the right thing to do and a sound uh, approach to business. Uh, so it was in that sense what we call a sufficient condition, but it's becoming a necessary condition. Right? So there are things that are sufficient but not necessary, but this is now a necessary condition because until recently, I would say you had a choice. You could operate in the traditional you know, profit-maximizing, shareholder-centric manner, and you could be successful, highly successful for decades. 
And there are many examples of companies that have been very successful, you know, with that approach. That is becoming increasingly untenable because increasingly now, first of all, employees, right, uh, millennials are the most purpose-driven generation we've ever had. People are looking for more out of their work than just a paycheck. Right? So they want they want meaning and they want purpose and they want growth and they want respect and dignity, all of these kinds of things. There's a higher bar. So if you're not offering that today, then you will be the employer of last resort, right? And, and you know, BDO is in the kind of industry where if, unless you get people, right, the right people coming there, I mean, it makes an enormous difference. And so that itself is, is one of the huge uh, factors there, right? That our employees are demanding it. And if we don't offer it, there are plenty of uh, up and coming uh, competitors that are offering many of those things, right? Uh, same thing with customers. So consciousness is rising all around. And with that, expectations are rising. So even customers now, many a rising percentage of them, you know, there's a whole movement called LOS, uh, LOHAS, Lifestyles of Health and Sustainability. More and more people now that are looking with a broader lens to say, what should I be consuming? Not only for my own well-being, physically and otherwise, but also for the community, for the environment, you know, for the supply and you know, all of that, a broader lens. So we have more conscious consumption out there. And people, we live in a, we live in a transparent world. And so if we are doing something in our supply chain or if we're not treating our employees well, et cetera, our customers will come to know of that and they care about it, right? And therefore they will act. So you're going to lose customers, you're going to lose employees. Um, investors increasingly look at impact. You know, you know, with any of these stakeholders, you can operate at three levels of Maslow, right? You can be at the base level, mid-level or high level. So with, with employees, it's a job, it's a career, it's a calling. Right, and with employee, the same thing with customers. With with investors, it can be just returns. You have investors who only care about returns. Doesn't matter what you're producing and how you're selling your stuff and to whom. Or the others who are also looking at impact. And there's a category that's also looking at legacy. And I'm using this money not only to have a positive impact that's in alignment with my values, but this will become part of my legacy from this lifetime. So increasingly, more and more investors are operating in those upper two levels. And impact investing, I think all all investing has an impact. Are you consciously thinking about it? I think that's becoming increasingly the norm. So I would say, and especially for a company like BDO, right? I mean, risk management is such a huge part of things, right? And and you just open yourself up to a, a Pandora's box of risks when you don't operate this way, because all of these things are massive potential liabilities for the company over time, right? So. For, if for no other reason than uh, than sound risk management, you need to be doing these things. But it really needs to go much deeper. You can't just be doing these things tactically, right? Uh, one of the great dangers of this movement, I will always caution against it, there are many people who look at the mounting evidence uh, of research, not only mine, but many others, uh, showing that this way of operating actually is more financially uh, rewarding in the long run. These companies just perform better financially. Uh, stock price, growth, profitability, all of those indicators, right? And many people uh, are attracted to it for those reasons. And they say, okay, we should do this because this will enable us to make more money. I said, well, that's if that's the only reason you're doing it, it, it probably will not work because that means you're still rooted in a profit maximization mindset, right? You're just now changing the way to get there. You're treating these as a means to an end, these four pillars, higher purpose, stakeholder integration, uh, caring, conscious leadership, and, and a conscious caring culture. That These are not means to an end. These are, we call them tenets, T-E-N-E-T-S. Right? Tenets is a pillar of fundamental belief. 
that you believe that purpose matters in a human life. Therefore, it should matter for the company that we believe that everybody whose life we touch through this business should be positively impacted, right? That we believe that leaders are here to take people to a better place, not just to operate out of you know their ego and accumulate power and money for themselves. And that the culture should be one that actually people look forward to coming and they grow and thrive there. And if you don't believe those things, right, that those are inherently important, even if they had no positive financial consequences, if you don't believe that, then if you adopt them, you probably will not experience positive financial consequences because people can see through you when you are not authentic, right? When you don't genuinely care, but you pretend to care because you heard that, you know, that's a good thing. Employees want to feel cared. So, so, or you say happiness, you know, there was a cover story in Harvard Business Review a few years ago, showed a smiley face and it said happiness is profitable. You know, happier employees are more productive and more innovative and all of that. And so, oh boy, let's, how do we create some happiness around here, right? What do we need to do? Well, you know, you have to do it for the right reasons. You can't just want people to be happy because it's going to make you more money. You should want people to be happy because that's what human beings should be. And, you know, you care about that. So uh, my friend Fred Kaufman uses the analogy. It's, uh, it's like asking somebody to marry you. And she says, why do you want to marry me? And you say, well, I read that married men live five years longer and they earn 30% more income in their lifetime. That's what I want to marry, and that's not a good reason to marry, right? And same thing in, in, in the case of business, right? We have to do these right things, caring things for the right reasons. And then you almost have a level of faith. It's like a spiritual Buddhist principle, right? You, you do not be attached to the cherished outcome, but you focus on the right actions. And the right actions will lead to the right outcomes. It may not be the outcome exactly that you had in mind, but it will be the right outcome based upon your right action. And I think that is a huge shift because we're so used to, you know, managing by objectives and by targets and by goals and by numerical, you know, bottom line and share price, uh, you know, goals uh, that we end up engaging in many, many wrong actions in order to achieve those particular outcomes. That is fantastic. Raj, um... You know, you and I uh, have become friends over the past few years, and uh, about four years ago, uh, you came and spoke to my board roundtable that I host uh, here in the Bay Area, and there were about 75 public company board members uh, at that meeting, and that was an amazing, amazing talk, and that started uh, this whole process where you and I, and with Dr. Neha Sangwan, we have been working on the Conscious Business Leadership Academy and really putting forth your whole body of work and kind of your vision uh, and, and taking it forward. Uh, can you take a moment and just describe, you know, uh, the Conscious Business Leadership Academy program? Uh, I'm so proud that, you know, uh, I'm working for BDO and BDO has taken uh, the leadership role in kind of uh, sponsoring the program, but I want you to talk a little bit about the Conscious Business Leadership Academy program. Yeah, no, I think this was the outcome, uh, you know, of your uh, creativity and your passion. And we brainstormed and we said, what can we do? We thought about a one-day thing, a two-day thing. Then we thought about a long-term thing, maybe uh, four meetings, uh, every one every quarter, a full day at a time, etc. And then COVID came, so we... Uh, pivoted and said, let's make it an online experience. And so that's what we've been doing now. We are in our third iteration of this. We've done uh, two, we're in the second one for CEOs. So the 25 CEOs 
from um, all over, but men, many of them from the uh, Silicon Valley area um, that go through this at a, as a cohort. It consists of 10 sessions. Uh, so I mentioned the four pillars, right? Purpose, culture, stakeholder, and leadership. And so we do two sessions on each of those. And we start with with a day in now in person together, giving the overview and sort of getting the journey set. And then we end also in a full day. But in, in between, there are eight sessions that uh, focus on those uh, pillars of four hours each uh, online. Uh, it blends the personal and the professional because the person you are is the leader you are. Right, so you cannot create this artificial wall between uh, uh, who you are at work and at home. So, this is really about conscious leadership and growth as a uh, as a human being and becoming more conscious as a human being, and that will then show up in every sphere of your life. And so we uh, we start with a uh, 360 assessment, the leadership circle profile, which is a really rich and powerful way for you to self-assess, but also other people who are impacted by your leadership can, can give tremendous input. And then you get a really clear picture of uh, your growth edges and how you can become uh, an even more effective leader. And you know, that makes all the difference. The more effective the leader is, right? Not only are they more satisfied and happy, but the, the impact on, on the business is extraordinary. There's tons of data that shows that. So, so we start with that. And then we also have uh, personalized executive uh, coaching Every CEO gets uh, about eight sessions of coaching, which is an extremely powerful. And I discovered coaching just uh, three years ago uh, for the first time I had a coach. And I said, wow, this is a very, very powerful thing in life that every, every leader certainly should have a coach. There's no way that you can navigate through and be conscious of all your blind spots and your reactive tendencies and so forth without having that objective person asking the right questions. So, so it includes all those elements, the 360, the coaching, and then the peer learning, you know, there's tremendous wisdom and experience in the room, even though we're introducing some of these concepts to them, but they've got many, many perspectives. So, so it becomes a really powerful uh, experience for all of them as the feedback has shown us. And then of course they become ongoing uh, resources for each other as well as a kind of a community. So now we're in our second cohort of 25 and we also have a, a similar program uh, that is now being offered to the C-suites uh, executives of the same companies where the CEO is going through that program and the C-suite leaders are in a peer group of their own with other C-suite leaders. So we have about 40 of them going through a program right now. And it's, again, uh, we're grateful uh, to BDO and to you for the vision uh, and the commitment. The CEO of BDO is actually in the program right now and the leadership team is in the uh, C-suite program. So a deep commitment on the part of the uh, company and it is going to bear tremendous uh, fruit just in terms of having so many more conscious companies out there and all the lives that they touch uh, will be uplifted by that. So it's, it's really a wonderful thing that BDO is doing. Raj, thank you. Wow, this, uh, I can't imagine how fast the time has gone by, 30 minutes. You know, this has been a great uh, part one of our two-part series. You know, this part was about conscious capitalism 101. Um, and I know uh, you and I are going to do another podcast, uh, which is going to focus more on uh, the board's role in helping uh, govern and manage companies get to conscious uh, mindset. Uh, but we are also going to connect uh, conscious capitalism uh, with uh, ESG, because uh, that is another movement that is you know, taking some serious steam. So, Raj, thank you so much for, for your time, for your wisdom. 
and 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 really appreciate your friendship. You're a you're a true amazing human being, and thank you for for all of your body's work. Thank you for listening to BDO in the Boardroom. Past episodes and related insights are available at bdo.com slash BDO Boardroom. Or you can go to iTunes or Spotify to rate, review, and subscribe. The views expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of BDO. For more information on the BDO Center for Corporate Governance and Financial Reporting and the resources we provide, visit bdo.com slash BDO Knows Governance.